Thank you. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We are continuing in our sermon series titled Heroes. We are looking at and learning from some of the heroes of the Old Testament, men and women whose names are enshrined in God's Word as heroes of faith in God. Uh, these heroes share several things in common, and I want to just do a quick reminder for us, a quick update for us about these things that these heroes share in common. Uh, and we see four things in particular. Number one, that heroes live by faith in God. The heroes believe God. They believe God was who he says he was. They believe God would do what he said he would do. God desires us to live by faith in him. God wants us to believe him. God wants us to believe he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. These heroes, the heroes also obey God. They demonstrated their faith in God by their obedience to God. We, today, demonstrate our faith in God by our obedience to God. Faith is belief in God in action. Faith is belief in God in action, the action being our obedience to God. We know the heroes please God. Uh, the heroes pleased God as they walked by faith in God. And the same is true for us today. We please God as we walk by faith in God day by day. The fourth point that they shared was the heroes saw God work. The heroes saw God do what only God could do in their lives as they followed him by faith. And as we follow God by faith, we see God do what only he can do in our lives and around our lives and through our lives, which blesses us and encourages us to continue walking by faith in God and in obedience to God. So far in our series, we have been blessed and encouraged and challenged by the testimonies of Abel and Enoch and Noah. These are the first three heroes we meet as we enter God's hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Today, I want us to look at and learn from. I want us to meet one of the last heroes we see in God's hall of faith here in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles open, Hebrews 11, verse 32, we read, And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Yephai of David and Samuel, and the prophets. Thankfully, we have plenty of time to study God's Word so that we can learn from God through these examples of faith to us so that we can learn from God through these heroes and apply the truth that God speaks to us through their testimonies in our lives. Remember, God always wants us to live what we learn from his word. We are to live what we learn from God's word. So we're going to take time to study God's word this morning together. And so uh, tell your neighbor God's word is good for us. Hold that good. Ready, set, go. All right, all right. That was actually good. That was really good. I'll give you an A for the 9 o'clock service. That was good. All right, the next hero that we're going to look at and learn from, the next hero we're going to study is Samson. 
most everyone recognizes Samson as the guy in the Bible with the great strength. The incredible Hulk of his day, if you will. Samson was a man of great physical strength. Samson was a man of questionable character and judgment. Samson is in God's hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And he provides us with an endless supply of encouragement and instruction, which we're going to begin to glean from God as we study his word. So if we're going to find more out about Samson, obviously, as the writer of Hebrews told us, he's not going to give us much in Hebrews chapter 11. Time would not allow him to do that. So time allows us to do that. So we need to turn back to the Old Testament. So turn to your left and go all the way back. Find the Old Testament book of Judges. Judges chapter 13 is where we will get to here in just a moment. What I need to do this morning here at the beginning is I need to set the scene. I need to build the context, the foundation upon which Samson walks onto the pages of the Old Testament. If we just jump in right where he is, uh, we could probably figure some things out, but we wouldn't be able to really get the full flavor of what's going on. So bear with me as I walk us through uh, kind of the, the context of where we are as we come to Judges 13 and as we meet Samson together. God used Moses and his assistant Joshua to lead the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, across the Red Sea, and into the wilderness outside the promised land uh, years and years ago. He used them to make their way there, and we see this in Judges chapter 13, but we go back all the way to Judges chapter 2. So look back in Judges chapter 2. I want you to see what's happening there. We see that the book of Joshua, just real quick, if you understand history of the Old Testament, the book of Joshua opens with the death of Moses. Moses, God had used Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, outside the Promised Land, in the wilderness. The book of Joshua opens with Moses' death, and then it tells the story. The book of Joshua tells the story of how Joshua, the Lord was with Joshua and the Lord empowered Joshua to lead the Israelites to take possession of the promised land. They actually moved into the promised land throughout the book of Joshua under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua was a fantastic leader for Israel because he obeyed God, number one. Joshua obeyed God. That's why he was a great leader for Israel. But number two, God had blessed Joshua by surrounding Joshua with some godly elders to help Joshua lead the Israelites into the promised land. Scripture tells us that the Israelites obeyed God, followed God under Joshua's leadership. Judges chapter 2, verse 7, we get a picture of this, and we read, the people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime. And during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua, those were the godly elders that lived and served with Joshua. Some of them lived a little bit longer than Joshua did. They had seen, the people of the Israelites, had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. That's the book of Joshua. The book of Judges that we're in right now opens with the death of Joshua. And all of the godly elders and the godly people that lived in Joshua's generation. They, Judges chapter 1 and Judges chapter 2, which we'll share here in just a moment, we see that uh, Scripture tells us that Joshua passed away as well as all the godly elders and the leaders of Israel at that point. And the generation 
that followed Joshua's generation turned away from God. They turned away from God. Look in verse 10. That whole generation, meaning Joshua's, was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They infuriated the Lord. For they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths. The generation after Joshua's generation turned away from the Lord. Scripture says they infuriated God because of their sin against God. They turned away from God and sin against God. If you're taking notes, here's just a little note you may want to jot to the side. It's just, just a quick little note. It's never a good idea to infuriate God. Just that's a little bit of note there for you. I'm sure you probably could have gathered that on your own. Really not a good idea to infuriate God. What happened? The Israelites, this next generation, they abandoned God. They intermarried with the pagan nations around them and took on their ways. They worshiped their gods. They bowed down to their idols. The holy, righteous anger of God burned against the Israelites. He was infuriated with the Israelites. Why? Because the Israelites did exactly what he told them not to do. God previously, as we look back in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, we look back through that passage, through those passages, we see over and over again, God warned the Israelites not to abandon him, not to any marry with the pagan nations around them, and not to worship idols. God warned the Israelites of his discipline against them, of his discipline that would come to them if they disobeyed him. They disobeyed him, and we see God disciplined the Israelites, his chosen people, for their sin and disobedience by allowing their enemies to raid them and defeat them. And so we see other nations, other pagan nations around Israel would come in periodically, and they would raid Israel, they would defeat Israel, and they would conscript Israel. Israel would serve those pagan nations. And they would suffer greatly. And then after a period of time, they would cry out to God for help. And God would raise up. In this passage where we're at here in Judges chapter 2, we find out that when they started to cry out to God for help, here at the beginning, we see that God raised up judges. And God would raise up judges who would help and lead the Israelites in their time of need. Judges 2 and verse 16, we read, The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. So what would happen? The Israelites turn away from God. They would serve other nations. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. The judge would lead and help Israel. He would take power in Israel. This judge was, the judges were military leaders. That's what they really were. They were military leaders who would raise up and they would be charismatic enough to lead the Israelites to stand up against their enemies and defeat their enemies and allow uh, the Israelites to regain their freedom. The judges here that he would raise up would also exercise judicial authority among the Israelites. 
They would exercise the judicial authority to try cases, to settle disputes, to make sure as best as they could during their time of leadership that there was peace among the people of Israel and how they interacted with one another. And so this was God's plan. We see this happen right after uh, Joshua's generation passed away. The very next generation, it didn't take long, the very next generation turned away from the Lord. The very next generation. And so we begin to see here at the beginning of the book of Judges that God started to raise up judge after judge after judge after judge. And so we continue. You'll love this. Look at verse 17. But we'll go back to verse 16. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. But they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their fathers who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers going after other gods to worship and bow down to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. God used the judges, the judge after judge after judge. God used each judge in the history of Israel during the time where God allowed judges to lead the Israelites. He used each judge to deliver the Israelites and to bless the Israelites And as soon as that judge died, the Israelites went right back to their sinful, disobedient ways. Immediately. And matter of fact, Scripture says they were even worse than they were before. The Israelites lived in a very bad pattern. They lived in a very bad routine of life. It's really a four-step pattern. We can summarize it. If you're taking those, jot these down. I'll just hit these real quick and then we'll move on. Really a four-step pattern. Step number one is sin. The Israelites would turn away from God. They abandon God. They'd forget about God. They'd uh, worship idols. Uh, They would turn away from God. Step two is discipline. God would discipline his people of Israel by generally using a a pagan nation, a foreign nation to come and to uh, take them captive and they would then be forced to serve that pagan nation. Step three uh, was confession. After a period of time, uh, the Israelites were really good at this. After a period of time, the Israelites would just cry out to God. And they would confess their sin to God. And they would ask God, help us get out of this situation that we found ourselves in again, God. Step four is deliverance. God uh, graciously uh, would deliver his people. Uh, He would raise up a judge at this time in the history of Israel. He would raise up a judge. uh, And they would lead Israel to rise up against and defeat their oppressor. And uh, they would regain their freedom. Now, within this pattern, within this pattern, and understand this pattern's bad. So we're going to just agree that this pattern's bad. There's one good point within this bad pattern, if you can say that. The good point is this. Each time Israel's deliverance, everyone knew was by God and God's power. Everyone knew each time Step four, the deliverance happened that it was God and God's power alone. Now, the bad part of the bad pattern was 
That only lasted for a very short amount of time, but didn't linger because as soon as that judge died, they would be right back to their sinful ways. The grace of God, I want you to notice a couple of things. The grace of God was on full display. Even here in the Old Testament, the grace of God was on full display as he delivered his people of Israel. Even as they turned away from him and sinned against him, God's grace was on full display as he took pity on them, Scripture says. As he looked upon their plight, he took pity on them, and then he would deliver them from their captors, from their oppressors. God delivered the Israelites, number one, because he loved the Israelites. They were his chosen people. Secondly, we know, based upon Old Testament understanding, uh, that God delivered the Israelites because God had promised years and years before he made a covenant promise with Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants one day. And so God always kept that remnant uh, protected and he would always deliver the Israelites because God fulfilled his covenant promise to Abraham and the birth of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You can trace, uh, as you look in the New Testament, the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. And so we see this amazing story unfolding here. And this is where uh, we come now. It's a good stopping point, understanding what was happening with the Israelites. It's a good stopping point. This is the foundation. This is the context upon which Samson's getting ready to step onto the stage of Scripture. We're still in Judges 2. Now I want you to move to Judges 13. Let's move to Judges 13 because we're going to see what happens. This is the stage uh, that... Uh, Samson walks onto the scene. What's the difference between Judges 2 and Judges 13? Only difference between Judges 2 and Judges 13 is a series of judges that God raised up and then they passed away and the Israelites went back into disobedience and God raised another judge up and passed away. The pattern. The difference between Judges 2 and Judges 13 is just this pattern repeated over and over again. We get to Judges 13 now and now we're going to welcome our good friend uh, Samson onto the stage. Judges 13 verse 1. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines 40 years. Here we go. This is why we needed to have this quick history lesson, this background lesson. What do we find out in verse 1? The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight again. They did it again. They turned away from God. They forgot about God. They abandoned God. They turned to idols. And... What do we see? We see God did what we know he's done because we know the pattern now. God disciplined the Israelites at this point uh, by handing him over to the Philistines. God handed him over to the Philistines for 40 years. Israel's disobedience to God came with consequences just as ours does today. Amen? Remember, Their disobedience, we see clearly, came with consequences. But don't forget, our disobedience comes with consequences as well. And so we see that God handed them over to the Philistines. I like what one Bible scholar said. He said, Israel did evil, and God gave them over to evil. They did evil, and then God gave them over to evil. The Philistines ruled over them. The Philistines oppressed them for 40 years. Quick 
quick history of the Philistines, real quick. The Philistines were very uh, common rivals of Israel. The Philistines and the Israelites battled, and if you know the Old Testament much, you'll, you'll recognize that. The, the Philistines and the Israelites battled many, many years. Often, these battles happened often during the time of the judges when they were leading the Israelites and during the time of the kings uh, that came after the judges as they were leading the Israelites. Uh, the Philistines lived in the western part of the Promised Land or Palestine. They lived along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, The Philistines uh, were experts at processing metals. Uh, They had a very highly trained, efficient, effective military force, in part because of their excellence with processing metals and weaponry and things of that sort. And we also know the Philistines uh, were uh, idol worshipers. They were very polytheistic. They worshiped many different gods. We know more than likely, I'm sure you probably can remember, the most popular Philistine from the Old Testament was Goliath. There you go. You know, it's Goliath, the big ugly himself, Goliath. Uh, it's probably the most popular Philistine that we see in the Old Testament. We continue reading in verse 2. There was a certain man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah, his wife was barren and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, it is true that you are barren and you have no children, but you will conceive and give birth to a son. Real quick, let's walk through these two verses. Uh, Zorah was a town in the territory of Dan, the tribe of Dan, when the Israelites moved into the promised land, remember back in Joshua, the Israelites moved into the promised land. Uh, each of the 12 tribes of Israel, Dan was one of those tribes, they were allotted land in the promised land where their uh, families would settle. And so uh, Dan was uh, one of the territories, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Zorah was a town in the territory of Dan. Dan, their tribal allotment, the tribal allotment that fell to Dan was in the western part of the promised land, the western part of Palestine. They lived very close to the Philistines. The people and the tribe of Dan lived very close to the Philistines. Zorah was a town in Dan that was a border town that bordered right up against the Philistine territory. And so we see uh, this unfolding, this uh, entrance onto the stage for Samson is unfolding. Zorah in Dan, border town next to uh, where the Philistine territory uh, begins. And an angel of the Lord comes to Manoah and his wife, and we're not told the name of Manoah's wife, so we'll just go with Miss Manoah. Um, and so we see that the angel of the Lord comes to Manoah, uh, comes to Miss Manoah and says, you're childless, you are barren, you don't have a child, and, and makes the obvious clear. But then the angel of the Lord goes to Miss Manoah and says, you will conceive and you will give birth to a son. This scene here in Judges 13 sounds very similar to a scene that we see and we've seen played out uh, in the New Testament when the angel of the Lord came to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless. The angel of the Lord came and said, you will give, conceive and give birth to a son. 
uh, and he will go before the Lord, that being John the Baptist. And Elizabeth did just what the angel said. She gave birth to the son, John the Baptist. He went to prepare the way for the Lord. So we see an angel of the Lord comes to Miss Manoah and says, you will conceive and give birth to a son. If you just look, we're going to go ahead and go do the spoiler alert. I think you can figure it out. But here's the spoiler alert. Look at verse 24. So the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. I know that's a shocker to you. The boy grew and the Lord blessed him. So the son of Manoah and Miss Manoah was Samson. So here we begin to meet Samson early on in his life, very early on in his life. Verse 4, now please be careful not to drink wine or other alcoholic beverages or to eat anything unclean, for indeed you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth, and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. So we, we find here in verses 4 and 5 some strict instructions the angel of the Lord gave to Miss Manoah. <clears throat> the reason for these instructions very unusual instructions, but the reason for these instructions was because, because we know Samson was going to be a Nazarite to God from birth. A Nazarite to God from birth. Nazarites, real quickly, Nazarites were men or women who were dedicated, consecrated, separated to God for service to God to fulfill the purposes of God. A man or a woman in Israel could take a Nazarite vow. They could take a Nazarite vow. It was a vow, a voluntary vow for a period of time for that man or woman to be separated to God for that amount of time in service to God to fulfill the purpose of God. This is the way most of the Nazarite vows were taken. However, children could also be called Nazarites to God from birth. They could be called that by God, which God would make that clear to the child's parents as the child was born, which is what we see happening here with Samson. Samson was called to be a Nazarite to God from birth. God Almighty called Samson to be a Nazarite to him from birth. That means that Samson was going to be consecrated, dedicated, separated to God for service to God so that he could fulfill the purposes of God for his life. Now, in these instructions, we find that the angel asked Miss Manoah to follow along with uh, some strict dietary instructions to follow along with some of the Nazarite vows during her time of pregnancy with Samson. The Nazarite vows typically consisted of, of three main vows. And now you also have all the dietary restrictions <clears throat> that were true for the people of Israel that we see uh, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as uh, God led the Israelites to understand the dietary uh, rules, unclean animals versus uh, clean animals, what they could eat and couldn't eat. So we see in the Nazarite vow, there was generally three main points of the Nazarite vow uh, that if someone was taking a Nazarite vow or if a child was called to be a Nazarite to God from birth, they had to follow these three vows. Number one, uh, they could not drink any wine at all. 
or any other alcoholic beverage. No, zero, no, no, no alcoholic beverage. No fruit from the grapevine. No wine. Secondly, they could not cut their hair. They could not cut their hair. Third, they could not come into contact with a dead body because that would make them unclean. Again, understanding Nazarites set aside, separated, consecrated to God for special service to fulfill the purposes of God. Old Testament has, if you look back in the book of Numbers, if you really wanted to do research, you'll go back to the book of Numbers, and you'll find that God allowed and put in his word rules, actual rules and steps for someone who had taken a Nazarite vow to follow if they happened to break one of their vows. If a Nazarite broke a vow, broke one of those three vows, God in his word included some instructions, some steps that they were to follow. And if they follow those steps, if they broke one of those three vows, if they followed these steps, they would, allow, they would be allowed to be reconciled to God. Why? Because the purpose would be for them to continue to fulfill their Nazarite vows to God, to fulfill the purposes that God had called them for. And so God in his grace, even accommodated the Israelites, should they break their Nazarite vow, this was the process that they were to walk through that would ultimately allow and enable them, if they followed it, that they would be able to continue and fulfill that Nazarite vow. And so this is some of the early information that we have about Samson. Now, just in your understanding alone, just in your understanding alone of Samson, probably, most likely, focusing in on the main story that we tend to highlight from Samson's life, all of a sudden now you start to go, oh, well, this makes, I see, oh, this makes sense now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that whole thing with that, that woman and kept trying to figure out what his strength was from and the whole haircut of that, oh, okay. Context, story, building piece upon piece upon piece upon piece, you begin to realize and understand, well, Samson was called by God to be a Nazarite to God from birth. Well, one of those, one of those Nazarite vows had to do with his hair. And so we see how this is going to continue to play out. So let's answer a couple questions. I think this is a good place for us to answer a couple of questions. We're going to learn a whole lot more about Samson uh, over the next weeks as we go through and learn about him as the Lord leads us. But let's answer a couple of questions. Number one, uh, what are some points we know about Samson here early on right now? Uh, We're going to obviously see these points play out more and more. Uh, but here from the very beginning, what do we know about Samson? Number one, Samson was a man of faith in God. We know this. Samson's in God's hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to see Samson's faith play out as we learn more about him uh, in the coming week or two. We know he was a man of faith in God. Number two, we know Samson was a Nazarite. He was a Nazarite. Uh, Samson was a Nazarite to God from birth. Samson was called by God uh, to be set apart to God from birth. He was a Nazarite. And so we know he was dedicated and consecrated and separated to God from birth so that as he grew up, he would be able to fulfill the purposes of God that God had for his life, which we'll see. Uh, we see right here in verse five and we'll see play out over the rest of the passage. Number three, Samson was a judge of Israel. He was 
the last judge of Israel. Samson was in the last judges. He was at the end of the judges of Israel. And after Samson, what happened was the leadership of Israel transitioned from judges to kings. We went from the judges to the monarchies uh, in the history of Israel. Look at verse 5. We can see this in verse 5. If you look at the end of verse 5, we'll just pick up at the end of verse 5. You must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth. And here we go. And he will begin to save Israel. Say that with me. Save Israel from the power of the Philistines. Samson was a judge that God raised up to help lead the Israelites, to save the Israelites from the power of the Philistines. We'll see a lot more about Samson. We'll learn a lot more about Samson as we continue making our way through. Second question is this. What is our takeaway from God today? What's our takeaway from God today? What what can we learn? What is God teaching us? What does God want us to take away this morning and apply in our lives uh, today and this week as we seek and serve him? Uh, looking forward to gathering back together again next week, should the Lord tarry and be willing to allow that to happen. What is our takeaway today from what God is teaching us already in this passage? I want, to, I want you to see three things, and these we're going to see throughout our time together. We'll see these manifest throughout our time. We'll actually talk a little bit more about these. We'll go into a little bit more depth about these three points, but I want you to see these three points as we begin making our journey through this passage with Samson, because these are three truths that God will teach us here today and over the next several weeks. Number one, the first thing that we see is we must eliminate sinful patterns from our lives. We must eliminate sinful patterns from our lives. The Israelites lived in a pattern of sin and disobedience to God. They lived in a pattern of sin and disobedience to God. We've already identified that pattern. Happened over and over and over again. Samson, we're going to find out, developed sinful patterns in his life, which hurt his walk with God, his worship of God, and his witness for God. Samson developed some sinful patterns that we'll talk about that hurt him uh, as he uh, served God. We must today... Be careful not to look at the Israelites and not going to look at their pattern and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe those guys. How could they have done that? I mean, seriously, how many judges should it have taken for them to finally get the clue and stop doing what they were doing? It's easy for us as we look at this word to say that, but then we got to remind ourselves, oh, 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 wait a second. How easy is it for us to allow sinful patterns? to set in place in our lives. How easy is it for us to kind of be just like the Israelites and and fall in to those patterns? You see, we must, we must, we must eliminate sinful patterns in our lives. When we see those patterns of sin developing in our lives, we must be quick to eliminate them from our lives. How do we eliminate sinful patterns from our lives? Real simple. We confess our sins to God and forsake our sin. We don't actually do it ourselves. God does it through us by his power in us. But we eliminate those sinful patterns in our lives as we turn to God and confess our sin to God and seek his power so that we might forsake our sin and live in the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus day after day after day after day. Remember the writer of Hebrews, if you go all the way back to Hebrews chapter 11, the very next chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, and the very first verse in Hebrews chapter 12, after 
the hall of faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11, the very first verse in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. The sin that so easily entangles us. Listen, we understand and realize sin entangles us. Sin strangles us. Sin consumes us because sin wants to destroy us. Wants to destroy us. We remember the Lord God Almighty. He told Cain last week, Cain, listen, sin is what? It's crouching at your door. And its desire is for you. It's desire. Sin is insatiable. It will not be satisfied until complete destruction. And so we understand as we, here's how it works, as we humble ourselves before God and as we get honest with God in our own walks, as we humble ourselves before God, as we get honest with God, we are a lot more likely to confess our sins and forsake our sins through God's strength and power. We're a lot more likely to confess our sins to God. Because you see, as we humble ourselves before God, and as we get honest with God about our lives, the Holy Spirit of God makes some things clear to us. Listen, we know when sin is entangling us. We know when sins are entangling us. Each one of us knows, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we know when sin grabs a hold of us. We know when it is beginning to entangle us because the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us can convicts us of our sin because he loves us and because God wants us to confess our sin to him. So we understand and realize that sin, when it takes root in our lives, we know because the Holy Spirit begins to speak, he speaks clearly, he speaks specifically, and we know it. God is never going to allow us to sin successfully, meaning to sin without knowing what's going on in our lives. No, God's going to convict us. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. His grace pours out to us and he convicts us because he desires for us to confess, to acknowledge and to confess that sin to him and to ask for his help, to forsake that sin because he's placed his power in us, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and me. Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. We are victors, overcomers, more than conquerors in Christ. We don't have to live under our circumstances. We don't have to live entangled in sin. We can live in the victory that God's given us through Christ Jesus. And so we know and understand it's vitally important for us as the Lord begins his convicting work in us. Then we confess our sins. And we know as we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. And he'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so on a daily basis, on a regular basis, day by day, we must make sure that we are humbling ourselves before God, that we're honest with God, that we're seeking God, so that we can make sure that none of these patterns of sin creep back into our lives. Because we understand and realize the scriptures teach us that we constantly have to throw off the things that hinder us. Those are not necessarily sins. Those are uh, maybe even at times good things. They're not best things. They're bad things. They're not good things. We're to throw off anything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. And so we know just like we see here, there are certain sins that easily entangle you and entangle me. Idolatry was the sin that easily entangled Israel. We're going to find out and learn, among others, a lack of self-control was the sin that 
easily entangled Samson. And so we must be careful to be honest with God so that we can understand and realize in our own lives that we're not allowing ourselves to become bound to these sinful patterns that we just keep doing and doing and doing and doing because what happens after a period of time is Satan's wanting to desensitize us to the conviction of the Holy Spirit because he wants to ultimately to destroy us, our walk, our worship, our witness for the Lord. Number two, the second point we see is we must recognize God's grace in our lives. We must recognize God's grace in our lives. God's grace, God's grace shouts out to us from his word, cover to cover, Old Testament, New Testament, you open a page of this scripture and I can promise you, whatever page you open the scripture to, you're gonna be confronted with the grace of God. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor poured out in our lives. God's grace was on display with the Israelites as God continually forgave them and delivered them and rescued them from their oppressors. He forgave them their sin. God's grace was on the Israelites over and over and over again. Unfortunately, the Israelites didn't always recognize God's grace in their lives. The Israelites did not recognize grace for very long in their lives because they went right back to their patterns of sin and disobedience. We see God's grace, and we're going to see this over and over, God's grace on display in Samson's life. Listen, God's grace is on display in our lives. As followers of Jesus Christ, amen? I hope you can say amen to that. I hope and pray you can say amen that God's grace is on display in my life. Each one of us as a follower of Jesus Christ should be able to stand and shout hallelujah about his grace at work in us. God graciously convicts us and forgives us. God graciously empowers us and encourages us. God graciously leads us and guides us and directs us and strengthens us so that we might be able to live his way day by day. God's grace reminds us he loves us. God's grace reminds us he's with us. God's grace reminds us he's watching over us. God's grace reminds us that he sees us. God's grace reminds us that he's working in us. God's grace reminds us that he's working through us. God's grace reminds us that he's working around us. God's grace reminds us that he is more than enough for us. As Jesus himself told the apostle Paul, listen, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power, my strength is perfected in your weakness. And so Paul said, oh, therefore, I can then boast about my weaknesses. I don't have to stress about my weaknesses. I don't have to panic about my weaknesses. I don't have to try to hide my weaknesses. I don't have to develop insecurity about my weaknesses. I don't have to try to blame my weaknesses on anyone else. No, wait a second. Paul said, I can boast in my weaknesses. Why? Because that's when Christ's power rests on him. It's when he rests on him. You see, God's grace reminds us that though we are weak, he is strong. We don't have to panic. We don't have to stress. We don't have to hide. We don't have to cover. We don't have to act in certain ways so that others don't see our weaknesses. No, the scripture says we can boast. We can boast in our weaknesses because when we are weak and when we recognize our weaknesses, we also see at the very moment in time, he's strong. 
He does for us what we can't do for ourselves. He fulfills his promises to us. He continues his work in and through us by his power, not ours. And we're going to see this over and over again, recognizing God's grace in our lives. The third point we see is we must trust God with our lives. We must trust God with our lives. Now, here's how it works. The more we see God's grace in our lives, the more we trust God with our lives. We must trust God today, every day, all through the day. Something we've learned already from our brief history lesson of the Israelites that we've learned from our brief introduction to Samson and something we know in and of ourselves in our own testimony, in our own lives, in our own relationship with the Father. We know these things apart from faith and trust in God. We cannot please God. We cannot live for God. We cannot accomplish anything for God apart from faith and trust in God. And so we understand and realize how important it is for us to trust God with our lives. You see, when we see that grace of God in our lives, we don't try to stress or handle all those weaknesses or all those challenges in our own strength. We're not running around trying to cover those insecurities. We're not trying to blame others. We're not living in stress and panic. No, because we understand and realize in our weaknesses, he's strong. And then obviously at that point, then we are reminded, then let's just trust God. The very thing that causes us panic and stress that we chase after and try to handle in our own selves is the very thing that God's asking us to, to just trust him with. He's strong, we're not. He's got it, we don't. He sees, we can't. He knows, we don't. So why would we spend any more time holding on to those very things that God is saying, listen, listen, listen. Trust me. Trust me. So how does that work? We trust God with our lives by receiving God's gracious gift of salvation by repenting of our sins, placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We then trust God day by day as we walk in obedience to God and the truth of his word in his strength, not ours. The psalmist was right when he said, O Lord God Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Solomon was right when he said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean out on your own understanding. Think about God in all your ways and he will make your paths straight. We must trust God with our lives. Let me ask you to bow in prayer. The worship team is going to come and lead us in this time.